John chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God, a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, amen, amen, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. Jesus, help us understand what it means to be born again. Many born again in this auditorium this morning, and they know. Some aren't sure what that means. Some have been in traditional church and, and have thought themselves Christians for years and years, but the born again thing, that, that was something of the 70s, a cliche and not really applicable, and yet you're the one who said, you must be born again. So Jesus, would you enlighten us and help us to understand for those who know that they know that they know that they're born again by your spirit, may they be given fresh understanding so that words of the gospel can flow even out of the teaching that we're sharing this morning. For those who are unsure or for those who are certain that they have not been born again, Father, may we be arms open wide and very clear with the invitation to that wonderful blessing and promise. Holy Spirit, you know where we are, every one of us. Speak to us this morning, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If I wasn't a pastor, I think I'd be a sociologist because people just fascinate me. Not being around people so much as studying them. No, I like being around people, but I, I, it, people are so interesting, and culture is interesting to me. And I was thinking about just yesterday how throughout history, culture itself, it, it, it ebbs and flows and changes and alters, and, and there is kind of a cultural mindset. You know, you hear phrases like cancel culture today, and immediately you think, oh yeah, that's the attitude in American life that says, if you don't agree with me, I'm shutting you down. It just happened, by the way, to John MacArthur. He was preaching a sermon in which he said, and it was up on YouTube, he said, uh, in the beginning, God created them male and female, and it was shut down and banned from YouTube because it was considered anti-LGBTQ. Cancel culture. There's this attitude. It's like, how did we get here? And, and watching over years when you actually can stack up a few decades in your life, you start to look back and think, wow, it's really different now sociologically, societally than it was then. And then I started thinking, well, God has such a perfect way of knowing exactly when and how to speak into a culture, into this world. Jesus coming in the first century was exactly when it needed to happen. Each of the prophets coming to Israel when they came, exactly when they needed to. I mean, all throughout scriptures, the timing of God is perfect. He is the great sociologist. 
He knows the heart of man and he knows how culture works. And he knew in the 1730s what needed to happen in America. The Great Awakening. The 1730s, 1740s. We've talked about this somewhat recently. I mentioned Jonathan Edwards in a recent teaching. Jonathan Edwards was one of the great names of the Great Awakening. So was George Whitfield. A couple of amazing guys who just trusted the Lord and spoke the truth. But in the 1730s and the 1740s, there truly was this, this readiness for revival. A readiness for revival. It was like a reverberating alarm in the American colonies. It just went off, and it wasn't just one sermon or one event that caused it to happen. It just, hearts of people were beginning to really fear lostness, to wonder about their salvation, and to wonder about the future of what was gonna happen among these American colonies. And so the Great Awakening just exploded across people, across all barriers, it cut across, listen, cut across barriers of race. The Great Awakening wasn't a white people thing. It was an all people thing. Everybody was getting affected by it. It cut across economic and class barriers. It cut across geography. It even cut into the media. In fact, coverage of the Great Awakening in the press of the 19, uh, 1730s and 1740s has been called our first national media event. They were all in. It's very different today. When it's all canceled. It's said in the first 20 years of the Great Awakening, over 50,000 people were born again in the colonies. 50,000 people. Listen, there was a, a population in, those, in that region at the time of 250,000. That means one out of every five people was getting saved over 20 years. And the waves of the Great Awakening continue to roll on. Think about the timing again of the Great Awakening, 1730s and 1740s. What happened in 1776? This country was prepared to be originally a God-fearing nation and God made it so by that great awakening that affected even our constitution and our American sensibility and was very strong and, and literally lasted a long, long time. I mean, you had Edwards and Whitfield in the 1700s. Over in England, you had Spurgeon, but you also had Moody in the 1800s. In the 1900s, we had Billy Graham among so many others. Now, uh, who do we have? Okay, stop that. <laughs> if I'm who we have, we're in trouble. <laughs> the Great Awakening, and I, I read about, I'm reading the book right now. It was written in 1790. I read stuff like that too. It's not just Led Zeppelin that I read about. It's, I, I read good stuff. So I, I'm reading The Great Awakening, and the author who wrote in 1790, just looking back only about 50, 60 years, it's a fantastic book. It's very interesting. And as he talks about what took place, I, last night I'm reading it and I was laying there thinking, why don't we see revival today? And that's where I got into the sociology of it. People were ready. People were, hearts were actually open. What's going on today that is making something like revival. And I'm not talking about the church staying open for two weeks of, of round-the-clock stuff. I'm talking about revival of the heart. I'm talking about people repenting and their lives completely turning around and it affecting culture and nation and the world. Why don't we see that? 
Why don't we experience it today? Now, we can come up with all kinds of reasons and, and talk about different biblical reasons for it and whatever, but among the most obvious reasons, there, are, there's, there don't seem to be signs of true revival in America, especially today, is the generic church no longer preaches that you must be born again. Where do you hear that? Born again. You know, yeah, it's the, it's the Calvary Chapel thing of the 70s and 80s. Born again. Ah, I'm a born again Christian. Well, I'm a Christian, but I'm not born again. No such thing. You can't be a Christian without being born again. It's the same thing. It's like saying, well, I'm a Christian, but I'm not a Christian. Come on. You must be born again, and it is not being preached. Altar calls in the church are absent or unanswered. Invitations to come to Jesus are either in short supply or they're just being ignored because we're fine. We're good. We don't need to come forward and pray. We can take care of that. I'll just pray right here. I'm good. Everything's fine in my life. The life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ is not being preached in this culture like it once was. Or you might find it in some places, but not very much. People in America are clamoring for social change without recognizing the change we need has to be in the heart. We need heart change. We need to deal with sin. Do you know why, by the way, from time to time I deal with, we talk about sexual immorality and I call out LGBTQ as I would call out a couple living together outside of marriage, my friends, it's the same thing. It's still sexual immorality. You know why we talk about that? Because if we don't recognize our sin, we will not be saved from it. You have to call sin, sin. It's not about me. I'm talking with Anna Marie about this just yesterday. I don't hate gay people. I don't hate the LGBT community. I don't hate someone who declares that they're homosexual. I hate the sin because I know what that sin will do to them. I know what the end result of sin is. It's death and it's condemnation. And I don't want that for anyone. Why wouldn't I tell the truth about sin? But we don't. We don't talk about it. We don't deal with it. We have bought the lie that we can get by. People need to change. Why isn't there revival? Because people are not ready to repent. Why is there not revival? Because people aren't willing just to come and pray. People don't realize they need redemption. We're rolling through life heads down and it's Laodicean lethargy. The church of Laodicea, you're neither hot nor cold, so I'm gonna spit you out of my mouth, Jesus said. We in the church need to wake up to more than political conviction. Don't tell me about your politics, man. Tell me about Jesus. What do you know of Jesus? What has Jesus done in your life? How is Jesus changing you? What is he doing in me? That's the issue, not what the next election cycle is gonna be. I mean, you can't be concerned about those things, but man, be concerned with Jesus. Ask him what we should do about the mess of this country. Where are you with him? Now, back to the Great Awakening. At the helm of the Great Awakening, again, we had Jonathan Edwards, a monotone, high-pitched speaker, who the first time he gave that magnanimous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. That was the title. Can you imagine that title on the board today? Hey, glad you're here. Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. 
buckle up. When he first preached that sermon, I think I told you recently, he preached it at his home church. Nobody, nobody came forward. No one really responded at all. Then he went over and preached at another church and people were weeping halfway through and people were literally crawling up the aisle in repentance for their sin, so convicted they were desiring to be born again. Listen to how Jonathan Edwards described the cultural climate of the day. This is out of that book, The Great Awakening by, uh, I think it's Taylor is the last name of the guy. Uh, I'll, I'll find out for y'all. He said, Jonathan Edwards said, many who looked on themselves as in a Christless condition seemed to be awakened by it with fear that God was about to withdraw from the land and that we should be given up to corrupt principles and that their opportunity for obtaining salvation would be passed. And many who were brought a little to doubt about the doctrines they had hitherto been taught seemed to have a kind of, of trembling fear with the doubts lest they be led into bypaths to their eternal undoing. And they seemed with much concern and engagedness to inquire what indeed was the way in which they must come to be accepted of God. That is so different than today. Today people aren't asking, how can I be accepted by God? They're saying, accept me as I am. Don't ask to change me, accept me. And in Jonathan Edwards' day, it was, how can I be accepted by him? There was something happening, something taking place. He said, the minds of the people were taken off from the world, and it was treated among us as a thing of very little consequence. He's talking about the area around Boston. And he's saying at that time, it's like everywhere you went, you go into a cafe, people are talking about God and salvation and eternal life. You go into the street, people are talking. A woman came to talk to Jonathan Edwards to meet with him as a pastor, and she was known around the town as the wild one. Everybody knew she was the partier, she was the one you went to if you wanted a good time, and people couldn't even believe that she had gotten born again. But she came because she started to sense the wrongness and the sin in her life. So it was, it was a different time, I guess. Whitfield, the Englishman, that great preacher, spent nine years in the colonies. He spent two years on the Atlantic sailing back and forth just to preach the gospel. He had a portable pulpit that he brought with him wherever he went, and he would go out into the middle of the field, set up the pulpit, put his Bible down, and start preaching, and people would just start to come. Tens, hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, literally, would amass in a field. You'd have 30, 40, 50,000 people showing up to hear George Whitfield. No worship band, no stage, no comfortable seats, just standing in a field, preaching the gospel, people getting saved. It was an awesome time. But listen to me. George Whitfield never once preached a sermon without saying, you must be born again. You must be born again. He said it so much and so often that a reporter actually asked him one day, how come you always say you must be born again? And Whitfield replied, because you must be born again. It was on their lips. It was preached. And by the way, what Jonathan Edwards was preaching at the time there were a lot of the denominational church guys who were opposed. He was preaching grace through faith. Faith in the grace of God that would save you. And the denominationalists did not like that. 
We come to chapter three of, of the Gospel of John. Again, the thousandth chapter. I just think that's cool. The thousandth, thousandth chapter in the Bible. And note this, don't miss the fact that it follows the story of the water changed to wine, which is what we talked about Wednesday night. If you didn't hear it Wednesday night, I encourage you to go back and listen and walk it through. Because that miracle is set as the first sign of Jesus. It is absolutely purposeful that it's the first sign that John mentions, that John talks about, because water to wine is a miracle of transformation. And then we come to the gospel, which is transformational. That's the whole point. You come out of a watery life and become sparkling and fresh and bright and brilliant and sweet and joyful. Water to wine. The transformation of the gospel. But listen, Jesus is the one who said it first and best. He said, you must be born again. So there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, and this man came to Jesus by night. Obviously, he had curiosity. He had been watching Jesus. He was aware of Jesus and, and confused about what he was seeing and what he was hearing. So John says he came by night. So say it with me. It was Nick. Right, okay, so we've covered that. Why did he come at night? Why did Nicodemus come at night? This educated Pharisee. We know he was educated because Jesus calls him the teacher of Israel in, in a bit here. We know he was educated, even his name, Nicodemus. It's a Greek name, but he's a Jewish Pharisee. He's on the Jewish high council, the Sanhedrin. So he's, he's a big wig teacher of Israel, Pharisee with the name of Nicodemus. This guy is well-educated, he's smart, he knows the law, he understands the world, and he comes to Jesus at night. Why? Well, some think he was looking over his shoulder. I want the other Pharisees knowing what I'm doing here. A little clandestine meeting might be a, a good idea. Just in case this Jesus turns out to be fraudulent, uh, let me just avoid that altogether. And truly in the Gospel of John, you might note this for future studies, night carries with it a sinister tone. John is purposeful as he writes, now by the Holy Spirit, but light versus dark. Right, truth versus lies. I mean, he's very clear and, and simple but profound in his language. And every time he talks about night, well, here, Nicodemus comes at night. Chapter nine, verse four, Jesus says, we must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. And he's alluding to the tribulation, by the way. Jesus says in, in John 11, verse 10, if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. John 13, verse 30, perhaps the darkest verse of the gospel. After receiving the morsel, Judas went out immediately, and it was night. Even John 21, verse 3, says Peter and the boys, they went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. Because at night, you stumble around in the darkness. At night, you can't see what you're doing. So it's possible that Nicodemus came, came to him at night because, you know, he kind of didn't want to be seen. It's also possible that he came at night because he just wanted privacy. Maybe he'd even tried to talk with Jesus before, but the crowds were too intense. There's always someone coming up to Jesus in front of him. Don't you hate when people do that? You know, I'm, I'm standing here, or Les is standing there, and we're talking to someone, and, and you're waiting, and you've been waiting 10, 15, a half an hour, you know, whatever, and, you're, and the person leaves, you're like about to step forward, and someone else comes right in in front of you. 
shame on those of you who cut in. <laughs> but maybe it was like that for Nick. So he, he can't get to Jesus. He thinks, okay, I gotta make an appointment. I'll come to him at night when we can sit and talk. By the way, the rabbis teach that the best time to study the Torah is at night. When there's no distraction, there's no clamoring, there's no noise, you can be quiet. I remember one time we went, we were in, in uh, Jerusalem and we had a, a tour guide who said, hey, you guys wanna do a night tour? And we said, yeah. So all through the night, when we got on the bus and everywhere we went, we called it the night tour. Welcome to the Jerusalem night tour. And so we went all over the place and he took us to Rachel's tomb, which is right there outside of Bethlehem. We know where it is. And I was so excited because it's night. And everywhere we had gone during the day, there's people and there's stuff going on. So I'm like, this is gonna be great. We're gonna be able to go see Rachel's tomb. How cool is that? And go in there at night. It'll be nice and quiet and we can look around. All of the Hasidic Jews, I think everyone that lived in Jerusalem, I'm not sure, they were all packed into Rachel's tomb with Torah open and they're arguing and they're debating and some are rocking up and down and it was, it was complete chaos. I'm like, I don't think this means what they think it means. This, this study at night. But whatever Nicodemus' motive was, this night was about to change his life. It was the night that Nicodemus, and I'll show this to you, begins to move out of the darkness and into the bright light of Jesus. John chapter one, verse four tells us, in him was life, and the life, the life of Jesus was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it, did not receive it, did not overcome it. That's the beauty of Jesus. He's, he is light in the darkness. I enjoyed yesterday because we actually had some light for a change. Man, this winter, it's really been depressing. Gray, you open the windows, hey, it's daytime. No, it's not. Jesus is the light in the darkness. In fact, John chapter three, look down in verse 19. This is the judgment, Jesus says, that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who, come, who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. By the way, that's another reason we don't see revival. People are scared to death they're gonna be found out that they are sinners. Guess what? Look around. We are in a room full of sinners. Every last one of us. You're not gonna surprise anybody. Yeah, I sinned last week. Hey, so did I. So did he, so did she. And I wasn't pointing at anybody in particular. <laughs> the light exposes, but that exposure in Jesus, when there is grace in the light, that exposure sets me free. Jesus says, he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God that is produced by, worked by God. He says in John 8, 12, and I'm gonna repeat this over and over through this study through the gospel. John 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world, Jesus says. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness but will have the light of life. Brothers and sisters, I am begging you, don't live in the dark. Stop stumbling around at night. Jesus is the bright light who transforms life. Don't live a faith that is limited to Sunday morning or on occasion that you might pop in a YouTube video 
or listen to some pastor somewhere. Don't limit your faith. Live it every day. Walk in the light as he is in the light. There's too much darkness in the church. You know why we're leaving the lights on? And I know some people don't even like it during worship because a couple people came up and said, it's so dim and dark during worship time. It just feels oppressive. And I thought, well, we can take away that real quick. Turn on the lights. Now, some of you have a different opinion, and that's fine. That's what happens. We get in a room together. Everybody has different opinions. But the point is this. Live in the light. Walk in the light that transforms life. We need to be with Jesus publicly and privately. We need to be with Jesus day and night. So Nicodemus comes to him. And he says, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God, a teacher. That's an impressive statement. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. I love this about Nicodemus. He is a thinking man. He is evaluating the evidence before him. He is not one of the Pharisees who says, show us a sign. You know, right after they ate five, you know, the bread and fishes for the 5,000. Show us a sign. Eyes open, dude. Nicodemus is seeing the signs. He's listening to the teaching and he's going, this is, this is profound. This guy's a, he's right on the money and look at what he's doing. Rabbi, no one can do this stuff unless God is with him. Rabbi, he says. Teacher, he says. Two things that he calls Jesus. He calls him rabbi, which yes, it means teacher, but it's not just teacher. It is great respect. If you call someone a rabbi in the first century, another translation of rabbi is great one. Great one. Disciples would submit. They would sit at the feet of their rabbi. So for Nicodemus, this Jew among Jews, Pharisee of the Sanhedrin, for him to come to Jesus and say, Rabbi, he is submitting to Jesus' authority. When he does, let there be light. <laughs> when he says that, Rabbi. But he also says, we know that you are a teacher. And the word is didaskalos in the Greek, and it's teaching with authority. It's not just kind of sharing stuff. It's one who teaches. And remember, throughout the Gospels, it says the people are amazed at his teaching because Jesus taught as one with authority. He taught as a didaskalos. So Nicodemus, I really think, has the right heart here. I call him a, a Pharisee in whom there is no guile. But Nicodemus comes to Jesus because he wants to understand what's going on. He wants to figure this out. No one does this stuff that you're doing unless God is with him. And so we come to the first question of Nicodemus. There are three. In fact, this conversation, this interview, if you will, in the first uh, 18 or so verses, this interview, it, it is framed by three questions. And the first one doesn't even sound like a question. If you read again verse two, where's the question in it? He's saying, what's up with you? What's the deal with you? Y you must be from God because of the signs. And you're a great teacher. What's the deal? And Jesus hears him and goes straight to the heart of the question in verse three. Jesus answered and said to him, amen, amen, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born again when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? 
Methinks Nicodemus' second question, how can a man be born again, contains a bit of sarcasm. But Jesus doesn't even flinch from the truth. He doesn't break, he doesn't crack, he doesn't laugh. Oh yeah, that is kind of funny. No, he goes straight to the answer. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. In other words, Nicodemus, here's the thing. You can't be born into this world and expect to awaken in the next. You can't be born in the flesh and expect to open your eyes in the kingdom. It doesn't work that way. If you're not born again, you're not getting in, period. And I wanna say that with absolute clarity, brothers and sisters, if you are not born again, you are not getting in. 1 John chapter 5, verse 11, the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life and the life is in his son. He who has the son has the life. He who does not have the son of God does not have the life. It is absolutely clear that if you're not born again, you're not getting in. Now, some have said here that the water is baptism. That's, that's actually the tradition I was born in, the, the, the theological teaching that I heard several times from verse five. Unless one's born of water and the spirit, he can't enter into the kingdom of God. And they would say, water is water baptism. Now, I believe water baptism is very important, very significant, an outward sign of the inward work that God is doing in a person's life. But this is not talking about water baptism. There's a word for it. It's baptismal regeneration, Rather than Holy Spirit regeneration, the teaching is that the baptism, that going into the water of baptism and coming out is the regenerative work that then makes you a Christian. And I was raised with that, and I, I disagree. What makes you a Christian is the grace of God and your faith in that grace. Well, why do you baptize? Because he told us to, first. And secondly, because it's such a profound outward testimony of what God has just done to my heart. I show everybody, but going into the water, I'm dying to myself and I'm, I'm raising up to walk in a new life. But the work, the work is spiritual. And in fact, again, look at verse five. He says, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And we know that he's talking about water related to birth and the flesh because of the next verse. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Water, flesh, and spirit. Jesus immediately explains water and flesh relate to physical birth. And this is super significant for Nicodemus. I'll tell you why in just a second. But he's contrasting here flesh born of water and spirit born of the spirit. How do you know? Well, because again, he defines it. That which is born of flesh is flesh. Amniotic fluid is 98% water. And it's 2% cells and, and a little bit of salt. So I don't know if that's for flavoring or what. I'm not sure what that's about. 98% water, 2% cells and salt. And then the water breaks and the baby's born of the flesh. In spiritual birth, something else has to break. It's not water that breaks in spiritual birth. I would call it our fleshly umbilical cord. Our attachment to this life has to be severed. 
it has to break. That's what I love about Jonathan Edwards' statement when he said people were not even talking about this world. They were unconcerned. They were engaged in eternal conversation. That's what you heard around town, people talking about heaven, not about earth. We have to cut the cord. And spiritual birth does that where fleshly birth cannot. And it is tragic to me to see people stay connected to this worldly womb until it becomes their tomb. Any baby that is not born, any baby that stays in the womb past the nine, okay, some of you girls, some of you ladies, I know it's nine and a half months and you're going, come on, come on. But, but around that amount of time, any baby who stays in the womb, the womb becomes the tomb. And they don't live. You cannot stay in the womb and live. You cannot stay in this world and think that you're just gonna live. Too many people, and they sit in church, have not been born again. Too many people just think it's not that big a deal. Too many people show up on Sunday because it's the right thing to do and it looks good. And besides, I got some friends that I like hanging out there. But then they go into the worldly workplace and it changes nothing. There's no fruit of the Spirit there. There's no life change. There's no hope. There's no looking forward to the kingdom. Actually, it's kind of denied. That was the Pharisees' problem. They were too into the kingdom of this world, too into their authority here and now. They didn't want to think about something coming later. They might lose control. And too many people sit in churches thinking, I'm not going to give up control. I'll show up, but don't ask me to give my heart to this stuff. Jesus says, that which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. The apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but those in ta taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. And he says, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised or spiritually judged or spiritually valued. So he doesn't think about that, doesn't want to think about that. I was talking to a sister this morning who was saying that her father-in-law 92 years old, his attitude about death is, I'm gonna die, and I'm not going where you guys are going, but I'm gonna go down and drink with my buddies and just tell good old stories. No, you're not. No, you're not. You're gonna go to hell unless you're born again. You gotta, it's not this world. The best that this world has to offer isn't even close to what Jesus is offering to you and to me now and then as we continue on. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. I, I love what Paul says. He says, not in words taught with human wisdom. You can't figure this out. It's not an intellectual thing. It's a spiritual thing. He says, in those things taught by the spirit, and then he says this, if you're reading along, it's 1 Corinthians 2.13, or just listen to me, he says, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words, the only problem with that translation is thoughts and words are not in there. What he's saying is the Holy Spirit combines spiritual with spiritual. 
What does that mean? God is spirit, right? John chapter four will tell us that. Jesus says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Spirit. How do we then connect with God? How do spiritual things of the spirit get combined with us if we're just in flesh? It can't work. We have to be in spirit to have spiritual combined with spiritual. As we are born again, born of the spirit, we become spiritual people, and then now we've got a communication. Before that time, you know what? The only communication we have with God is very simply this. I am a sinner, save me. All the other prayers, I I honestly believe this. Now, you can argue with me over it, but all the other prayers people pray go unheard because it's flesh trying trying to connect to spirit, and it doesn't work. The one prayer is, I am a sinner, and I need your salvation, and boom, spiritual to spiritual. When a person is born again, Ephesians chapter one, verse 13, Paul writes, in Christ, in Christ, you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. So Jesus says again in verse seven, do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. Listen to me, it's the only time in the gospel of John when Jesus says you must you must. He doesn't say it about anything else. Now, there, there are other imperatives. There are other commands of Jesus. But when he says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And here he commands, you must be born again. Don't think that there's any other way around it. There isn't. It is the only you must. He is absolute and unequivocal. You must be born again. Okay, so what does that mean? Born again. Let's get it off the bumper sticker and out of the cliche and into real meaning. It is genethe anothen in the Greek. Genethe anothen. Genethe is born. So that's easy. Anothen, by spiritual implication, we translate it born again or born anew. By exact literal translation, it is born anothen from above. Born from above. Not born of earth, born from above. Jesus is talking about, as Les said during communion, a supernatural thing. He is talking about supernatural, spiritual, heavenly kingdom birth. A birth that is performed by our spiritual obstetrician, the Holy Spirit. And he's the only one that can do it. And you can't do it, and I can't do it for you. Which is, again, why, why the baptism issue really is an issue, because if we think baptism regenerates and saves us, we'll just do the work. In fact, honestly, if I really believe that baptism saved people, I'd just be kidnapping people right and left at gunpoint, forcing them into the water and getting them dunked. We baptized 500, and then the pastor went to jail. That's not what saves us. It is a work that is out of our hands, my friends. Literally, it's an act of God. Being born again is an act of God. John 1, 13, those who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So the question is, do you want to be delivered? The only way to be born again is to be born from above, born from heaven, born of God, All you gotta ask is, do I wanna be born? 
do I want to be delivered? Verse eight, check this out. He says, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. And you might read that and think, oh, so nomadic, transient. I know I'm born of the spirit. I'm in the military and I've moved 1,700 times. That's not what he's talking about. It's kind of what I always used to assume, but this is one of, while it's a strange saying of Jesus, it is one of the most simple and straightforward if you think it through. Listen, wind and spirit, you Bible students know, are the same word. Same word both in Greek and in Hebrew, by the way. The word in the Hebrew is ruach, and the word in the Greek is pneuma. Ruach and pneuma both translate wind, both translate spirit. They're the same word. And listen, again, he says, The wind, the ruach, the pneuma, the spirit, blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the ruach, the pneuma, the wind, the spirit. Enigmatic saying. And you know, I mean, picture Nicodemus' face at this point. trying to get it. Here's the point. We see, we see the effect of the wind, but we don't see the wind. And we live on Windy Whidbey Island. We know that this is a windy place. Have you ever seen the wind? Some of you would say, well, yeah, I saw it was windy last week. I saw the wind. No, you didn't. You saw the trees fall over. Saw the power lines go down. You saw branches flying through the sky. You saw leaves spinning around. You did not see the wind. You can't see the wind. The wind blows. You can't see it. But you know what you can see? The effect. And that's how you know the wind is blowing. You see it. You can feel the effect of it. You can actually experience wind. You still can't see it. Oh, look, here comes the wind. No, that's a branch heading for your head. We don't see the wind, but we experience the wind, and we know when it's windy. Romans 8, verse 16, Paul said, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Hey, listen to me. If you're born again, you know it. No question. If you're sitting here this morning, and you're thinking to yourself, I don't know if I'm born again, then I would tell you you probably haven't been. And I don't mean that as a judgment at all. In fact, if that's you this morning, you're like, I, I don't, I've been to church, studied the Bible. I mean, I believe, but I don't know if I'm born again. Listen, once you're born again, the Spirit tells you, you know. It is unquestionable. You have confidence in that. And if you don't have that this morning, then we, when we all offer the altar call, which we're gonna offer again today, then you need to come forward and get born again. You need to come forward and have the full assurance of the Holy Spirit. His Spirit testifies with my spirit that I am a child of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Suddenly you can see more clearly. You understand. You can discern better than you did before. Things that you didn't get. I've told you the story before. There's a sister who who goes to the bridge who was extremely liberal and very pro-abortion and she started coming to the bridge. It didn't take long for me to offend her. But she kept coming and coming and listening to the truth of God's word and it changed her heart and, and she ended up working for pregnancy care clinic. 
and being rabidly pro-life because the truth does that to you. It changes you. The veil is taken away. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, 17, the Lord is the spirit. Where the Lord is, is liberty. Hey, I know the wind of the spirit is blowing when I am free in Jesus and I'm not shackled to law and tradition and, and fear and guilt and all these other things. He says, but we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as from the Lord the Spirit. So it's transformational. Can't see the Holy Spirit, but boy, I can see the transformation he's working in me. I am not the same guy I was this time last year. I'm not the same guy I was 10 years ago. And if you've been walking with the Spirit you're different too. You can't help it. You may even think, yeah, people think I'm a little more, you know, Jesus freaky than I used to be. Good, good. Because the wind blows and you don't see it, but it's transforming you. The spirit is transformational. Galatians chapter five, verse 22, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These attributes are not your fruit that you worked out. I had a little plaque that was on my wall in my bedroom right next to my kiss posters when I was in junior high. <laughs> and the plaque was Galatians 5, 22 and 23. And it listed the fruit of the spirit. And I remember reading that and as a, as a middle schooler going, man, my work's cut out for me. Joy wasn't a problem. I had fun with everything. Love, I loved who I loved. There were some I did not love. Peace, mm, patience, oh man. And so I determined, I, I, I'm gonna work the list. I'm gonna work the list. I'm just gonna start working on one and when I've got that one, I'll go to the next one. Problem is, as soon as I went to the next one, the first one fell apart because I couldn't work it out. It's the fruit of the spirit. I don't see the spirit, but I know the effect of the spirit. And I see the workings of the Spirit of God. Do you see it? Not the wind, not the Spirit, but His work in you. The effect, assurance, transformation, fruit, change. And truly, as the Spirit goes, so go those who are born again. That is, you no longer go your own way, do your own thing, seek to please yourself. When you're born again and born of the Spirit, you wanna do what pleases Him. It is a thrill to do those things that you know are pleasing to God. And when you realize you've just some, done something pleasing to the Father, oh, that feels good when you're born again. All of this goes on. Proverbs chapter three, verse five, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. But here's the deal. It's not gonna work unless you've been born again. And this is Nick's problem. Remember Nicodemus? We're still talking about that. Nick's problem was he hadn't been born again and he was trying to wrap his brain around this. Now, some people would say, all right, this whole wind spirit thing, how do I know if the Holy Spirit is blowing this way or that way? How do I know it's the Holy Spirit? And not just maybe Pastor Rick on a Sunday morning going off on something that he says is so important. How do I know it's really the Holy Spirit? How do I know when I visit a new church that it's the spirit at work here and not just that they've got an awesome worship team or amazing special effects that move me. 
How do I know it's the Holy Spirit? Jesus says, and we're gonna come back to this later, Lord willing, not today, John 16, 13. Jesus says, when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. So he'll never lie to you. He will never deceive you. He will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, Jesus says, for he will take of mine and disclose it to you. All that means is that the Holy Spirit doesn't drive, he guides. He's not gonna coerce you, but he will lead you if you will let him. He will always lead you into truth. He will always give you full disclosure, check it out, of what is to come. What do you mean by that? You know what? I don't need to give you a prophecy update for y'all to know what's coming. You know what's coming. I know what's coming. I know that any time now, today, tomorrow, next week, in, in a year, I don't know that, but I know I'm gonna be caught up. And everyone born again will be caught up to be with Jesus in heaven. This is what the Bible teaches. First Thessalonians 4, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, Revelation 19, Revelation 4, we can get all into that. We, we will at, an, at a later date. I'm gonna be caught up. I know that's coming. I can tell, that, tell you that with absolute assurance. Why? Because full disclosure. And once caught up, I'm gonna be with Jesus for the equivalent on earth of seven years and a, a, a heavenly honeymoon, marriage feast of the Lamb. It's gonna be awesome. And at the end of the seven years, I'm coming back with him to rule and reign on this planet for a thousand years to teach people, to preach the gospel because there are gonna be people who need to hear about Jesus even while he's here. People getting saved in a thousand year long kingdom age, the Bible describes explicitly. And then at the end of the age, guess what else happens? Then there's gonna be a great throne judgment. And after the great throne judgment, oh, I can't wait for this, new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem. Bible describes it, it's mind blowing. How do you know all these things, Rick? Well, because he will disclose to you what is to come. And he has. So we know what's coming and you know it's the Holy Spirit because he glorifies Jesus. You wanna know if a church is spirit-filled? Ask this question. Do they worship Jesus? Do they talk about Jesus? Is Jesus on the lips of the people in the fellowship? Is he at the forefront of the teaching and the preaching of the sharing? Do we love Jesus here at the bridge? Then you know we're a spirit-filled church because he is being glorified by the Holy Spirit who is at work. Praise God. Now, if you're listening to all this and you're like, I still don't get this born again thing, neither did Nicodemus. Look at verse nine. Nicodemus said to him, question number three, how can these things be? I don't understand. I, I, I don't get this. No, I think it comes out of childlike incredulity. He's shaking his head. He's, he, he's rubbing his yarmulke. He's going, I, I don't. I don't understand. How is this possible, what you're saying? I think Nick wants to get it. So many people are like this. You want to get it, but you're just struggling. You're like, I, intellectually, I'm not there. Nicodemus was a rabbi of renown, as we talked about. A Jew among Jews, and here's the thing, listen, born of the seed of Abraham. And like Jews of the first century, he had an assumption. He was born with an assumption that was among all Jews, especially at the time, and, and 
Jewish people today who haven't accepted Jesus still believe this exact same thing. If I am of the seed of Abraham, I am the chosen, and I am going into the kingdom because of that. But here Nicodemus sits across from another Jew who is telling him it's not enough. Born of Abraham is not enough. You have to be born again a second time. And Nick's doctrinal belief system is being shredded at the seams by Jesus. Oh, Jesus isn't speaking anything that isn't biblical truth. Absolutely laying out the scriptures. But Nick is going, wait, that's not, that's not how I've been taught. That's not what I'm thinking. That's not how this works. Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Jesus isn't being a jerk, okay? Jesus, I, I think, is incapable of being a jerk. Messing around with people, having fun, sure. But I don't think he's being a jerk here at all when he says, are you the teacher of Israel? You don't get this? What's interesting is, is that he calls him the same word that Nicodemus called Jesus earlier, teacher. Didaskalos. The difference is that Jesus here says, you are the teacher of Israel. Nick said, you're a teacher sent from God. But Jesus says, you are the teacher of Israel. You are hodidaskalos. As if to say, Nick, I know about you. This guy's president of Jerusalem University. This guy teaches everywhere. He's on the teaching circuit. This guy is, a, is the teacher of Israel. There's something about Nicodemus, I think much more than we realize from the brevity of his mention in the scriptures, that he was the guy. That he was a go-to teacher. And Jesus says, are you that guy? And you don't get what I'm saying? Look at verse 11. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? How can we even go any further until we deal with this born-againness from earthly, fleshly water to the Spirit? And Jesus says, and it's marvelous. He says, we. We've told you these things. We know. We speak of what we know. We testify of what we have seen. And you do not accept our testimony. First of all, he's not talking about himself and the disciples. Because Peter, at this point, didn't have a clue. The other apostles who are with Jesus, they're just trying to figure him out. They like the teaching. This guy's amazing. Faith. I'm sure was sparking among them. Kind of like Thor in Ragnarok, how his fingers sparkle, you know? If you, anyway. Um, so they're like, they're starting to get it, but, but Jesus isn't saying, we, me and these 12 brilliant men around me, we testify of what we know. No, they, weren't, they were not clued in yet. So who's he talking about? There's only one we the Holy Spirit, Jesus, and the Father. This is an inter-Trinitarian statement. And by the way, someone would say, well, no, that's the royal we. He's just being majestic there. We, speaking in the plural, kind of like, you know, kings and queens and monarchs do. And I've told you before, it didn't even start in the monarchy until the 11th century. Over a thousand years after Jesus, Henry II was the first one to say we, and he was referring to himself and God together. 
This wasn't a thing. You didn't say we in the plural. You never talked about yourself in the plural unless you were talking about yourself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit in the plural. And that's what Jesus is doing here. We know. In fact, at the end of the chapter, John the Baptist, verse 31 of chapter three, said, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. And he has seen and heard of that. He testifies and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. He's the one giving testimony. Jesus says, we are testifying. We have talked to you. We have told you these things and you don't believe. So then the next question that I would ask is, all right, so Jesus, you're saying we testified when? When did we, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, already testify things that Nicodemus should know? For centuries, God had been doing it. Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, should have known or at least could have known. Listen to this, Ezekiel chapter 37. If he was as studied in the scriptures as he claimed to be, he should have known. When Jesus said you must be born again, he should have known exactly what Jesus was talking about. Or at least he could have known. Verse one of Ezekiel 37, listen to this. The hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me out by the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of a valley and it was full of bones. He caused me to pass among them round about and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley and lo, they were very dry. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, oh Lord God, you know which is, you know, classic prophet's way of saying, I don't have a clue. And he answered me and said, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath, ruach, spirit, to enter you that you may come to life. I'll put sinews on you and make flesh grow back on you and cover you with skin and put breath in you that you may come alive and you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a noise. And behold, a, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to bone. The shin bones connected to the knee bone. And I looked, and behold, sinews were on them. Flesh grew, skin covered them. But there was no breath, no ruach, no spirit in them. Then God said to me, prophesy to the breath, the ruach the spirit. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, the spirit, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, O spirit, and breathe on these slain that they may come to life. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they came to life and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. But that's not the end of the story. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope has perished and we are completely cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves. I will cause you to come out of your graves, my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And then you will know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves and caused you to come up out of your graves, my people. Listen, I will put my spirit my breath, my ruach 
within you. And you will come to life. And I will place you on your own land. And then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and done it, declares the Lord. God wasn't throwing the baby out with the bathwater. He wasn't saying, I'm done with Israel. I'm going to go over here and do a new thing with different people. God had promised all along, listen to me, we told you, we told you what we were going to do, Nick. That Israel and the world have no better, have no chance of coming to life without the spirit than a bunch of dried up, sun-bleached bones have of, of spontaneously regenerating. It's impossible. Anyone without the spirit, even if the bones come together and the flesh comes on, stands there like a zombie. There's no life until the spirit until the spirit, you must be born again. You must be born from above. You must be born of the spirit. And I'm saying to you that Nicodemus, listening to Jesus describe this before he said anything else, Nicodemus should have known, could have known, ought to have known. Don't be one of those. Don't be a should have known. Don't be a could have known. On the day you stand before the Lord, don't be one going, well, I I, I should have studied that a little better. I could have maybe had more of an impact in the world. Well, I I guess I could have known that if I'd taken a little extra time. Don't be a shoulda or a coulda. It's a sad way to live. Jesus, again, in John 16, 14, said, he will glorify me, he will take of mine, will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine, therefore I said what he takes of mine, he will disclose to you. Now, I'm not big on shoulds and oughts in Christianity. I like grace. I'd much rather talk about the grace of God that covers us and saves us, but my friends, there are some things that we shoulda, coulda, oughta know. No one will be able to stand before God with any excuses. Well, I would have known that, but your Bible was just too thick. No, you're thick. I should have known. Verse 13, verse 13. Okay, let's race through this. No one has ascended into heaven, Jesus says, but he who descended from heaven, the son of man. He's not referring to Jacob's dream, Jacob's ladder, Remember in chapter one, verse 51, that Nathaniel, he's talking to him and he said, you're gonna see angels ascending and descending on the son of man. That's not what he's referring to here. He's drawing out a proverb. I love this. He's saying, no one, no one has ascended. No one has gone home to be with the Lord. No one has gone up to heaven except he who first descended from heaven. And that is the son of man. What's he doing here? He's quoting a well-known Jewish proverb. Something that Nicodemus coulda, shoulda, woulda known. Proverbs 30, verse four. Listen to this. Who has ascended into heaven and descended? Who has gathered the wind, the spirit, in his fists? Who has wrapped the waters in his garment? That's interesting because you're born of water, your flesh wrapped the waters in his garment. Jesus was born of flesh, wasn't he? Who has established all the ends of the earth? And then the proverb says, what is his name? What is his son's name? Jesus, he's amazing. He's not fully disclosing himself to Nicodemus, not yet. He's not fully entrusting himself. It's too early in the ministry. 
but he's giving Nicodemus every reason to think and to come to faith and to believe that Jesus is the son of God. Come on, Nick, come on. What's his name? What's the name of the son of God? And Jesus says he will be, he is unlike any other human being with a near-death experience or some heavenly experience story. See, the son of God didn't go there and come back and write a book about it. The son of God came from there and went back. Ephesians 4.10, he who descended is he himself who also ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And so Jesus is getting the attention, speaking the language of this teacher of Israel. And he continues to do that in the scriptures. He goes on in the next verse, verse 14, and says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up. And he's referring to Numbers 21. And I'm not gonna get into it. We're not gonna read it right now. If you haven't heard the teaching in Numbers 21 called the serpent and the standard, go back and listen to it. Because Jesus draws a parallel between that and himself that is stunning. Listen, rapid fire bullet points here. Jesus says, the son of man must be lifted up like the serpent, like the serpent. Even more oive for Nicodemus, how in the world can Messiah be like the serpent? He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The serpent on the pole is the perfect picture of Jesus on the cross who became filthy sin and took the full wrath of God on himself on the cross. Jesus says, as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the son of man, a messianic phrase, so must the son of man be lifted up. Lifted up is prophetic of one thing, and that's the cross. Now, I wanna correct something really quickly. I used to think it was prophetic of two things, the cross and the throne, because the son of man is lifted up. But if we say he's talking here about the throne, then we actually take away from the message of the cross. Jesus says in John 8, 28, when you lift up the son of man, then you will know that I am he and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the father taught me. He's saying, when I'm crucified, that's when you know I'm not doing this on my own initiative. I didn't choose to do the path. This is what the father required of me when the son is man of, is lifted up. John 12, 32, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. And he's not talking about being exalted. Oh, he is exalted. He is exalted on his throne, lifted up high above all of us, high and exalted as we sang this morning. But the lifting up that Jesus refers to here like the serpent in the wilderness is the cross. For Jesus, the cross was always, always the end game. The cross was what he came to do. And finally, to be saved required one thing. In this story, in the wilderness, what did they have to do? God told Moses, they were all being bitten by snakes because they were complaining. God told Moses, make a bronze serpent, put it on a standard, and tell the people when they look, if they're bitten, I will save them. What did they have to do? They had to believe. They had to believe. The Israelites had to believe, first, that they were sinful, and secondly, that God would save them from their sin, which is why Jesus makes this illusion. We have to believe. 
This is not some bland, yeah, I believe in a God. I believe in a higher power. No, you have to believe that you're a sinner. And you have to believe that God saves sinners. I am a sinner. And God has saved me. And when you believe that way, when you understand that, you can be born again. 98 times in this gospel, John uses the word believe. Believe, believe, believe that you are a sinner and that you need a savior. And with the most amazing statement so far, Jesus brings it all together. He lands in verse 15 saying, so that whoever believes will in him, in the Son of Man, have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And Martin Luther called John 3.16 the gospel in miniature. It's the whole thing. My son years ago asked me, Dad, can you break down the Bible in one verse? I said, yeah. John 3.16, that's it. Now he gave us the whole word because he wants us near to him and loving him and, and next to him and learning about him and being filled with him and all of that. But John 3.16 is it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Here's the problem with Nicodemus. Nicodemus and the Jewish people in the first century especially thought they were ready for the kingdom. They thought they'd done it all. Everything necessary. Born into Israel. Seed of Abraham. Done the homework. Gone to temple. Offered the sacrifices. Everything. We've done everything we need to do to be kingdom ready. And along comes the Messiah saying, there's one thing you lack. You gotta be born again. Spiritual transformation. If you're not born again, you're not getting in. See, the thing is, it wasn't, what they, it wasn't what they could do that mattered. Listen to me this morning. It is not what you can do to get to heaven. It's what you can't do. Ironside put it this way. Nicodemus came face to face with Jesus only to find out he had a tremendous lack this teacher of Israel, this rabbi, this Jew among Jews, this Pharisee of the ruling council, and yet across from Jesus, he realizes, I'm short of the whole thing. I haven't been born again. When the interview ends, we don't even get a hint about Nicodemus's response. We don't know what happened. It just kind of stops, and John goes on to something else, and I'm standing there going, John, hey, wait a minute, what about Nick? What happened at the, did Jesus offer an invitation and did Nick take it? We can track Nicodemus through the gospel of John. In chapter seven, Jesus stands up, says, says he who is thirsty, come to me, you know, and rivers of living water will flow from within him and the people are all talking about it and they're all excited about it and the Pharisees send out a detachment of guys to arrest Jesus and bring him and when the guys come back, the Pharisees are like, where is he? And the guys are like, you gotta hear what he's saying. And the people love him. So they didn't bring Jesus, and they're all angry. And Nicodemus comes to Jesus' defense. He says, wait a minute, isn't it part of our law that we don't judge someone until we've heard from them? And his fellow Pharisees are like, who do you think you are? And they get all upset with him. The next time we see Nicodemus is in John chapter 19, 
verse 38 that says, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission, and he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, and I would, I would add, but is starting to see the light, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds, and they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with spices, which is the burial custom of the Jews. Nicodemus is there caring for the broken, mangled body of Jesus and not caring what the Pharisees have to say about it. And if the death of Jesus affected Nicodemus so personally, what do you think the resurrection of Jesus did? Historically, we hear that Nicodemus was born again. That he was barred from office, that he was banished literally from Jerusalem, but he was baptized by Peter and John. Barred, banished, and baptized. Not bad. I like the sound of that. In his tremendous lack, Nicodemus learned what we all must understand. You must be born again. Have you been? Have you been born again? Can you this morning say, oh yeah, that's me. I have been born again. Or are you uncertain? Or do you know that you haven't been? Do you believe that you're a sinner? And do you believe that God saves sinners? Then you can be born again. If you have the slightest uncertainty, Jesus delivers. He'll do it. But you gotta believe in him. Mm-hmm.